down to earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. Each week here on Down to Earth, we dig into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. Today, the weatherman known for his endearing wink, Gerald Fleming, joins us on Down to Earth. Hi, Jared. Welcome. Hi, Cara. Good to hear you. You too. Jerry. you're best known for your long career in Met Aaron from 1980 until your retirement as head of forecasting in 2017. But I was really surprised to learn that from the 1980s onwards, you spent a lot of time visiting community and farming groups to talk about climate change. So what prompted you to take that up as a kind of hobby, really, outside of your work for Met Aaron? I suppose it's not so much a hobby as part of my professional responsibility in a wider sense, I would have thought when when I was in the weather business, of course, I became aware of the problems that climate change was going to bring us probably earlier than than most people, given the business I was in. Uh, And I felt it was important because I had a public profile. I was doing television work, radio work, who I was. People, I hope, you know, trusted something, some things that I said. I felt that I should use that trust to bring that message to people, explain things to people, let them understand what this problem that was coming down the tracks was so they'd be able to think about it and adjust to it because clearly it's a problem we all have to adjust to in society. So you're probably one of the Ireland's first climate communicators as far as I can tell. So how have you seen climate communication change over the past four decades? I think in those early days it was very much just about the science. Here's the science, here's what's happening, uh, what's likely to happen, here are the sorts of things we need to think about to mitigate it, to uh, change our lifestyles. So in terms of talking to farmers, we were talking about uh, the need probably to plant more forests and that <clears throat> at that time, we probably hadn't got much of a handle on the meat issue in a sense, how meat is so much more carbon intensive than, than plant-based foods and other things like that, <clears throat> pardon me. So it was an earlier stage. And of course we, we weren't dealing at that stage with the, what I might call the misinformation which came out much later and much stronger as the various vested interests in society who were invested in the carbon economy uh, began to put out messages which I suppose read waters. Your former employer, MedAaron, has been criticised in recent years for its lack of engagement in communicating the climate crisis to the Irish public. So what's your view on MedAaron's role in, in educating the public on climate change? Well, Madeiran's primary role is to take the measurements on which we base our science. And I think that's a very important role and it's seen as totally objective and that the trust which people have in Madeiran is, is not in any sense weakened by their taking a stance on something which might be seen as political because anything to do with society ultimately is political. So we need to separate the scientific from the societal. There are other bodies within the public service structure, most notably the EPA, that have that mandate to, if you like, start to educate and inform and advise society on things to do. And, and that's very important. And Metairn works very closely with the EPA. So Metairn has to walk a very fine line. Of course, as atmospheric scientists, the people in Metairn know better than most what's happening and what's likely to happen if society doesn't change. But they're also the custodians of the record on which base the science. So they need to walk that fine line between being scientifically objective and getting the message across, but in a scientific manner, not getting too involved in the societal choices which are going to have to be made because those, in a sense, are societal and political decisions 
which are very difficult for a scientific organization to get involved in that discussion without, I suppose, being seen to have their scientific objectivity compromised. You know, they're in a privileged position that they that they have the attention of the public every day and giving weather forecasts. And, and some people have argued that maybe they should be mentioning climate change every day or every week in the same way that The Guardian has made an effort to put climate change on the front cover of their paper every week. Do, do you think maybe Met Aaron should be making a conscious effort to, to say climate change when they report the weather? The whole link between day-to-day weather and climate change is a difficult one, and it, it's got a lot more uh, easy to talk about that in recent years when what we call attribution studies, when a particular event is studied, it might be a storm or something like that, and the likelihood of it happening in our current climate as against our climate as it would have been 50 years ago uh, is, is calculated. But those are not easy calculations to make, and they're not something that are available on, on a daily basis. So your average forecaster sitting in the office in Montrose in RTE getting together their television bulletin is not going to have that information to hand with or get with regard to events that either have just happened or are imminently about to happen. Also, I think people do minimize the, um, the challenge in explaining and describing the weather to 5 million people plus uh, in Ireland, uh, in different parts of the country, you may have different, very different experiences of weather in the coming four or five days. And we're trying to give forecasts out to four, five, six days ahead. We've got two minutes to do it. You know, it's not like you're standing up to give a lecture. You've got a very short amount of period of time period to deliver a message, a very important message to people about uh, what's likely to happen meteorologically in the next four or five days, different messages for different places. That's enough of a challenge, I think, before starting down the road of climate change. I think weather presenters do have a role to play, but it's not in that two minute slot after the nine o'clock news. I always thought maybe if they didn't spend so much time telling us what the weather was like in Australia, they might have time to talk about climate change. But in 2019, you and I presented a documentary for RTE's Climate Week called Will Ireland Survive 2050? And I got to go film in Carlo and Cork for that program. And you went to Copenhagen and Greenland, but I swear I'm not jealous at all. Having already known a lot about climate change before that trip, what did you find most surprising when you went? I think what was very strong for me was the uh, experience of people we spoke with in Greenland who in a sense are on the front line because we know that the Arctic and the Antarctic are both heating much more quickly than other parts of the globe. And that's been a very robust prediction of climate change science from the very beginning that the polar regions would be the ones where the greatest temperature increases would be experienced. And and that's been shown to be have been the case. It's been a, a very um, successful prediction, if you like, if you want to look at it, the theory and, and the prediction and what we've measured. So talking to people who'd lived there and how much the ice sheet had retreated, and the place we went to, uh, Kangalusuak, which is really the main airport within Greenland, it's actually in a desert, uh, and it's on the far side of Greenland, the western side of Greenland, very, very dry area. So you have to travel a bit from the town itself, with a very small town, uh, to get to the ice sheet. And then when you get to climb up on the ice sheet, you can almost see and hear it just melt away. Uh, and that's quite a, an eerie feeling. It's a vast ice sheet, of course, and it will take hundreds, if not thousands of years to melt. But the amount of liquid water that will result when that solid ice melts and, and the rise that that will bring to the oceans and the effects it may have on the weather patterns in our northern hemisphere as the whole temperature regime changes from north to south you know, those are very fundamental changes coming down the tracks for us in um, 
in, in in, in the, I suppose we'd call it the near future meteorologically in the next couple of hundred years. You've spoken about Greenland's <coughs> impact on sea level rise and you've spent a good deal of time in countries like Myanmar and Bangladesh in your work for the World Meteorological Organization. And both of those countries are particularly susceptible to climate change and sea level rise. So what have you observed in your work there regarding the impacts of climate change and their ability to adapt to it? This is one of the paradoxes, I suppose. Those who have created the problem by and large, which is Western society, are not the ones who are going to suffer the worst from it. The ones who are going to suffer the worst are the poorest in, in our societies, in, in our globe. And those are largely people living in very marginal conditions, very often uh, on deltas or very low-lying ground. In the Bay of Bengal, where tropical cyclones occur typically, a number of them every year, you've got uh, particularly two large river deltas in Bangladesh and, and in Bengal, in West Bengal, part of India, you've got the Ganges and the Brahmaputra, and then you've got the Irrawaddy from uh, Myanmar. And they're both areas where a lot of people live, very, very many, many, tens of millions of people eking out a living from fishing or from farming and hugely vulnerable to sea surge rises, to strong winds, to heavy rains that come with tropical cyclones. So I suppose what we've learned and what we've seen is the vulnerability of of society and how over time we're actually pushing people into becoming more vulnerable by forcing them into living and, and scratching out a living in, in places that are, are more and more at risk and how that inequality that exists between East and West uh, is in a sense magnified when you look at the potential effects of climate change. Beyond the general topic of climate change, what are the more specific environmental challenges that you think we should be most concerned about here in Ireland? I suppose many of them are well ventilated, uh, getting our transport system decarbonized, our electricity system, the ESB, to be fair, are, are uh, gone on that road of, of wind power and so on. And we need a lot more of that. Uh, if we are going to have electric cars and they're going to make sense, we must expect that the electricity that drives them doesn't come from burning coal or oil or fuel, that it comes from renewable sources. Uh, and that will be a huge challenge, of course, to put in a network that would support that. But housing, I think, is one of the areas where we've really taking our eye off the ball because we've known about this for 30 or 40 years and how much how, how many houses have been built in Ireland in the last 40 years or thereabouts and how many of them have been built to really high standards of energy consumption you know I know we have our rating system now from our A1 to our B's to our C's and our D's uh, but there's an enormous amount of work to do to bring our housing stock up to a point where on this, you know, occasionally cold and always damp little rock that lives mm -hmm. off the northwest of continental Europe out in the Atlantic, our climate is our climate. And we know that a lot of the year it's actually pleasant enough, but there are four or five months uh, through the autumn, winter and early spring, which are chilly. We're going to need heat. Uh, we need to be able to dry the air to live comfortably because we live in a very humid environment. We live in a windy environment. Uh, wind you know, sucks the heat out of houses with cold wind. I live in Wexford where when we have an east or northeast wind, it's very difficult to keep the house warm. So these things are, are challenges to bring our housing stock up to the level of, of insulation and comfort that we can comfortably live uh, in, in the decades to come. I understand you and your wife, Mary, are beginning a deep energy retrofit of your home. And, and that's something I want to do badly uh, to my 1950s bungalow. But I'm so intimidated by that whole process. So what's been your experience in these efforts to green your life? 
it's interesting when you look at it, and particularly when you look at the economics of it. Yeah, I mean, we're in our early 60s now, so we're, I suppose, adapting our house for the next 30 years or 40 years that we hope to be on this earth. Uh, and part of that is a deep energy retrofit. The house itself was built in the 80s. It was built to a good standard, uh, double glazing, you know, good quality insulation uh, as of the standards of the time. Uh, in, I think it ranks as a C1 in terms of um, the, the current energy rating, which is, is not too bad. But, you know, we want to get it up into the A's. And that's going to cost us. Uh, and when you look at the cost economically, uh, it, it actually doesn't make sense economically because we only spend about a thousand euro a year on, on heating costs. We're probably going to have to spend 50 or 60,000 to bring it up to the level that we want to. If you look at that in our projected lifespan, that doesn't make sense. Of course, that's dedicated on the relatively cheap oil that's around at the moment. Um, but it's for more than that. We want to try and, and live in a house where our energy consumption is absolutely minimized. Uh, which is also comfortable for us as we get older and uh, that we, we can live in without expending too much either in terms of energy, either uh, carbon-based energy or our own energy for that matter. So it's it's part of that. So it's it's a challenge. And there's a, when you look at it, my wife is an architect and you know, architects are, well, you and I would look at a wall and say, that'd be nice if we painted it. They look at it and say, well, we'll fill up that door there and we'll break through a window there and you know they think in a different scale to the rest of us which is good uh, but it's a bit scary when you go down that road yeah so there's no financial payback for you undertaking this work even with the grants which might actually save you about half of that 50,000 euro cost but uh what's your motivation there for isn't, doing this no what's your motivation then because because i think it's the right thing to do uh, you know we we can afford to do it ourselves, thankfully, uh, but I'm aware that there are very, very many people in the country cannot afford that. And I think it's something the government are going to have to look at, you know, the amount of money needed to bring the housing stock of the country up to an acceptable level of, of um, energy use. It's money which, in a sense, will be well spent because the building industry money that's spent in it generally stays within the country, circulates around it, that rising tide that lifts all boats uh, paradigm i suppose which doesn't work all the time but works at some industries so i think it's money that the government knows is is well spent but i suppose particularly at the moment with the pandemic and with the payments that have been gone out the last thing the department of finance wants to know about is another large funding source but at the same time i think it's something we're just going to have to do well there's been an 80 percent increase in uh, the amount of money being allocated to deep energy retrofit by the government but what else do you think that we need to do now in ireland to help inspire action on climate change you know, we have a pretty strong voice in the world culturally. We're a small country, but we punch well above our weight. Obviously, we have a seat of the UN Security Council now for the next few years. You know, even that itself is an indication of the respect to which we're held. And I think we have that voice that we can bring out to other countries. But if we're to do so, we've got to get our own house in order first, you know, not to be um, preaching one thing and doing another. Uh, obviously, our agriculture, too, is uh, very much based around dairy and, and that's probably going to have to move to some extent i mean our agriculture is actually relatively carbon friendly compared to other agricultures which are much more intensive we're fortunate to live on an island where grass grows very freely and so on yeah but you know people are still going to have to eat so i think it's really more a question of adjusting our agricultural practices rather than uh, deep destructing them in any sense. You mentioned how awareness on dietary changes has really increased since you started communicating about climate change. Have you changed your own diet at all? We do. We don't eat as much meat probably as we used to. I'm not saying that I don't like meat. I do and uh, I use it a bit in my cooking, but we try to stick to plant-based meals maybe a couple of times a week, certainly for lunches and that is generally salads and so on. 
our soups. Um, so we do ease back. But I think, you know, we, we pay very little for the quality of the meat and fish that we get. We ought to be paying an awful lot more. The farmers ought to be getting much more per kilo and the fishers uh, so that they can continue to make a living by producing less in quantity. But I won't say more in quality because the quality is already very high. But if I compare the cost of meat in this country to places, other places I've been uh, across continental Europe, you know, we, we pay very little for very high quality. Um, I'm not saying food costs are not an issue for many people. I know they are. And I'm, you know, I'm fortunate that I, I don't have to worry about the cost of food as such. It's not a major item in my budget as a percentage of, of, my, of what I have to, to spend. Uh, for others, that's not the case. But by and large, I don't think we realize how good the quality of our food is and how little we pay for it in comparison to others. So maybe we have to change that. Well, I completely agree. My thanks to meteorologist Gerald Fleming for sharing his green life with us on Down to Earth.